You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Lilith St. Crow, which is her real and given name, is the author of more books than I can shake a stick at or have time to recount here. Her latest two books are a duology. The first was Springs Arcana. Her newest book is The Salt Black Tree. Together, they're the dead god's heart. Thank you for joining me, Lilith. Hello. It's pleasant to to be back again. It's, It's an exceeding pleasure to talk to you again. You know, um, one of the things I thought about reading this whole uh, book, both both books, back to back, kind of. I, actually, I there I took a space between reading them, but that was nice because I looked so forward looked to getting it back into the story. W- was the character of Nat, and you have picked as your character a teenage girl. Teenagers can be somewhat unappealing or or, or not, you know, depending on how they're written. But I thought you did a wonderful job of showing that kind of transitional moment in using all every tool kit in the uh, fantasist's world of literature to externalize all of the problems that we have when we're growing up and our parents are powerful people, whether we realize it or not. Yeah, Nat is an interesting case. I've written YA before, and I've written books with teenage protagonists that are not YA books. So Nat is kind of in in her early 20s. She's just coming out of her teenage years, but she's also been extremely repressed. So a lot of her her habits and her ways of thinking are very young. She's been infantilized by this overwhelming and intense personality that her mother is, which is, you know, kind of another function of the, you know, so much of of this duology is is a parable about growing up in an abusive environment, even if there might not be beatings or things that you would think of as traditionally abusive, that there are other ways to be toxic to your children. And that this duology kind of centers on growing up under those, those conditions. So it's it's good to hear that some of that came through. Because Nat is a very, very young 20-year-old. <laughs> I really enjoyed that that kind of development that you did in you know bringing her out of her shell, but showing us this by her increasing awareness of her own, you know, uh, I guess we'll call them they're not exactly psychic powers, but they're, they're in that realm of, of of godlike powers, as it were. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that this all rests on, the superstructure this rests on, is this idea of humans creating gods through their belief in them and then moving those gods when they move which humans do all the time so talk about creating that kind of superstructure uh you know a big a huge big fantasy superstructure to discuss you know the intimacies of a toxic uh environment growing up oh that's that's a good one well, when it started out, when when the books started out, I knew they were about gods and how humanity creates gods, and and we talked a little bit last time about how I arrived at at that particular 
you know, humanity creates so much, we're storytellers, you know, why not create gods or pour so much belief into, say, a literary figure that it becomes a, a spirit of its own and acquires some sentience of its own. So, but the more I worked, the more I, I uncovered this book, the further along I went, I realized that it was a story very much about a young woman, any young woman, discovering her power and healing from a lot of things. And that's a very powerful process. The fact that it's that it's happening to someone who also happens to be a god, it, it surprised me as much as it surprised anyone else. And uh, there's a lot of a lot of my work centers on that kind of of healing, um, overcoming, or the just the damage it does to be raised in those types of situations where healing might not be possible and overcoming the damage might not be, but you just have to live with it and find ways around it. So I suppose I should have expected that going in, but you know, when you write, when you create something, it's it's like that line from The Craft. I, I love that movie where, you know, to cast a spell, you open the floodgates, you create something. And at that point, you're kind of not really in You're in absolute control and yet you're not in control at all. All, which is part of the paradox of creativity and you remember from last time I'm all about the paradoxes too well I think that that is one of the things that defines us as humans is our ability to embrace belief in two ideas that are completely oppositional to one another uh, normally you would think that say a belief in science cancels out a belief in religion yet many scientists are very religious and many people who are very religious are you know uh, observant and caring about science and i think that that's what makes humanity uh, a powerful force to be reckoned with and also the kind of force that could actually create something like the gods but you also have a lot of fun in this book, as does the reader, and I'm, to... <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. So, talk about the how important the discovery process is for you to have fun. I think that the fact that you're discovering things that you don't expect and having fun doing so translates to a fun and unexpected reading experience. There's a couple of different aspects to that. The first is something that I I heard. Stephen Brust say once, and Stephen Brust, uh, I think he wrote the Taltos series, Vlad Taltos, and uh, he says that he he has a little sign put up in his his writing area saying, "And now I'm going to tell you something really cool," and to me that's that's really important to and intrinsic to a writer because if I'm not having fun or interested in what I'm doing, how can I possibly hope to to invite a reader into that? And to not to put too fine a point on it, publishing is such a horror, it's such a horrible industry that you know you have to take your fun where you can. But there's also the, you know, I am driven to write, I am driven to create. And part of of doing that is when I'm when I'm excavating a book or building it, because there are two different processes. Um, some books require one, some books require the other. But while I'm doing that, I can tell that the process is working the instant the book takes a screaming left turn and surprises me. So I call it the muse. Um, you know, she 
lays about on her on her divan, you know, bonbons. And every, every once in a while she decides, oh, I have to go visit my my working plebe. And so she comes and throws glitter and themes and, and stuff into the, the cauldron that I'm working in. And then she leaves and lets me do the rest of the work. So I think it's very important for that, for a work, a book, any type of art to take that screaming left turn that surprises you because it shows that it's an organic creature in and of itself. The, the book is alive. It's alive. It's alive. That, that actually, that's really important. That's a great way to put it because you can tell when a book especially has just kind of created it itself. Now, I have to ask you, were these two books... Were they excavated or were they built up? And I guess it was all written as one long piece. So there wasn't a separate process for each book. No, there really wasn't a separate process. And, and that that gave my editor quite, quite a bit of trouble. My, my <laughs> poor editor. If you're listening to this, Claire, you're a trooper. Uh, these books were excavated. I knew that there was something in there. I, I tripped over something in the sand, and then, so I set up camp and started digging. I knew the basic dimensions of what I was excavating. That was how we you know, sold it to the publisher, because I kind of knew what would be under the sand. But still, I had to go with my teacup and my brush and and start digging. So these were very much excavated books. They were already there, kind of buried in my psyche, and I, I had to dig them up and look at the the fun frescoes and open a door and then slam it really quickly because Dima was behind it. So <laughs> now I have to ask, and you're perfectly uh, welcome to assume you are answering the question. But oh, this how, is going to be a good one. How much of Nat's experience as a child is a reflection of yours? Well, uh, Nat's experience was a little tamer than mine, because after all, her, her mother, Maria, has a use for her. Mm -hmm. So she, Maria could not be too brutal because she had a, I can't really put it better than that. She had a use for Nat that wasn't really, that wasn't simply and solely as an ego extension. Um, my own experience growing up was was different. It, it was a little more, um, how shall I put it, physically brutal. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Uh, because when you're in that type of situation, there you are often viewed as an ego extension. And when you start to differentiate, when you begin to develop your own personality as a toddler and start saying, no, that's where things start to escalate because you are no longer the perfect dependent ego extension that 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 the parent wants. I hesitate to call it a parent. We, we have a, you know, the word parent means something good, something benign, and that's not exactly what it is, but we don't have a word for those less than benign parental figures. You know, the, it's really interesting. I think that one of the things that, that you know is most memorable about Nat, and this uh, kind of runs it runs through both books, is that as a young child she talked to cats and the, the cats answered, <laughs> and, and and I think that that's such an interesting thing because on one hand 
it seemed almost reasonable for a child to talk to cats and also for almost reasonable for cats to answer just because a in the, the mind of a child you might you might hear what you think is the the cat answering but also because cats are cats and and and, and that's what they do. That's yeah. what they do. They talk to people when nobody else, they talk to you when nobody else is listening and nobody else can verify that you're hearing what they say. Well, at first I thought that the cats came from the fact that spring, especially in Northern Scandinavian and, and Slavic cultures, spring is often drawn in a chariot that's that's drawn by cats. That's how she gets around. Uh, so, oh, so Freya, for example, has the 13 white cats who, who d- draw her chariot. So I thought that was the connection. But later, as I was digging and looking through it, I realized that part of recovering from this kind of childhood and part of coming into your own, not just as an artist, but as, a, as an adult person, requires almost a re-enchantment of the world. Where you're, yes, I had, you know, an invisible best friend. Yes, I spoke to cats. These are part of who made, what made me who I am as a child. I was very imaginative. Um, And and I'm using the plural you here, not just myself. So learning to trust one's own perceptions, learning to re-enchant one's own world is not only healing for people who had a non-ideal childhood, but it's also part of the process of becoming an adult in its own right, I think. I think it's incredibly important to to find a, a bit of wonder in the world as you are entering adulthood. You know, Does that make sense? I feel oh, like I just flubbed that explanation badly. And no, it makes perfect sense. And in fact, what I was going to say, it makes me think that um, reading, and in particular books like this, and this these two books, or this book, depending on how we look at it, um, is in a sense, as adults, a way we try to re-enchant the world, to enter a world where enchantment in the in the world is real and then we can bring that vision of an enchanted world out into our world and i think that's one of the big values and powers of uh fiction that uses the elements of the fantastic whether it's spaceships and lasers or, or you know um gods and and uh, demigods uh, cavorting in wild parties on earth yeah, the, the party. I've I've gotten a lot of uh, I've gotten a lot of fan mail about that that particular party in West Egg, and I I think that you know if Jay Gatsby is is throwing his party still, I think he would absolutely appreciate that. I think he'd absolutely appreciate being talked about like that. It seems that the party seems seems to have left a mark. So, <laughs> and you take us to another party in in the the salt black tree. Yes, and also extend, uh, you know, the 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 reach of the hotel. So talk about this kind of hotel that's everywhere. I love that idea that there's a supernatural hotel in every city in the world, and you know, yeah, I, 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 love I think to it's check all, into it. I think it's all one hotel, and there are just different entrances. I, like I, I think yeah. so, uh-huh. but you know, you you start dealing with gods and and a place named Elysium and. Uh, you know, Mr. Charon behind the the desk, you know, the the ferryman of the dead and all that. And, uh, you know, you're going to get a little bit of weirdness. I don't think I would like to visit that place, however. 
uh, mostly because of the revolving door, because I, I know what the revolving door runs on and I don't want any of that. Uh, and also because dealing with gods as a mortal is, uh, it's it's not a very, I'm happy for them to remain in fiction. I'm happy for them to to stay over there. They're like rattlesnakes. They stay over there. I stay over here. We leave each other alone. So, you know, um, also too, this book makes me think about it, and this is just some kind of random coincidence that there's been a lot of reporting lately that I think like 58% of Americas belong to the nuns religion, which is N-O-N-E. <laughs> and well, yet, they don't belong to organized religion. Exactly. And that's one thing I like about this. This offers us a disorganized religion that yet has gods. And I think the, you know, there's been so far in world history, there's been a consolidation of God. So there's only, in a sense, one God. And that's seen as, you know, the way to design religion. There's one point to the top of that pyramid. But now I think with it, with your book, we see the sensibility in splitting God up. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of work to be done. Monotheism is actually a fairly late invention in human society and, and, and that. Before that, you know, we had animism, we had paganism, we had, you know, there's a state religion, certainly, but that's so we know who to tax, you know, organized religion is about the money. It's it's follow the money. It has been about the money for a long time. That doesn't mean that people don't believe in it. And that doesn't mean that that people can take it and do great things with it and be kind to their neighbors and, and do good things. It also doesn't change that at bottom, it is all about the money. <laughs> So I think that being given the option to move back to more pluralistic ways of interacting with spiritual experience is an unqualified good thing because it teaches tolerance, because it starves a lot of the the nasty money-grubbing religions of of their funding. I mean, you wouldn't know it uh, since we live in a country that provides them with tax breaks. And oh goodness, I'm going to get in so much trouble for saying this, but here it is. We're, we're here. I've got my cup of tea. You know, we might as well go into it. So there was a consolidation of religions, but it's also quite interesting that the religious response, the, the response of human beings to certain types of, of experiences, communal or, or otherwise, has been hijacked so effectively by things that aren't gods or aren't organized religions. You've got multi-level marketing schemes. You have celebrity. You have literature. Uh, my personal favorite, of course. You have, you know, paintings and stuff. So the response seems to be intrinsic to humanity. How it's channeled changes according to our cultural and social set, which absolutely fascinates me, as I'm sure you can tell, not just talking to me, but from my work too. You know, um. One of the things I love about this are, are all the varieties of the, of gods you create and the way you incarnate them. And the the last book ends, and the first this book begins with the ranger. What what a great character! And I imagine, did you see any of these people specifically incarnated, as it were, as actors playing this part? Because some, I mean, it seems like. So there are some thing, parts that you just go, oh, my God, that's got to be this person. 
oh, who who would I cast? In my head, Ranger does look very much like Idris Elba. He <laughs> looks very, very much like Idris Elba. Exactly. Yes, yes. And and there there are certain things like, for example, Beyonce is in the the New Orleans Elysium. She is absolutely a goddess, and I, I can't think of anybody else who could play that goddess but her. Uh, there also Lady Gaga is in there if, if you look, um, and uh, in Virginia Woolf actually, who isn't alive now, but Virginia out in the desert, the figure of Virginia who has the, you know, the lady who lives out in the desert. She doesn't like liars, and she she's another grandmother who gives the gift of anger to Nat. I enjoyed every moment with her in a particularly uncomfortable roller coastery way. And uh, I think maybe Tilda Swinton could do a good job with her. Exactly. You know, that's one of the fun things about reading this book and this sort of literature is that um, as readers, we get to create the cast and the special effects and bring it all to life in a way that makes us comfortable. And, And as much as I'd love to see this as a TV series, which it could absolutely be, from from your mouth to Hollywood's ears. <laughs> yes. Once the strike is done, Once we support SAG-AFTRA and the oh, strikers. Absolutely, but th- this seems it's it's made, and it's also got that whole aspect of the road novel. Now, the a great figure in that we ne- we don't. I I didn't expect him to become so important or so likable. Is Dimitri? I what? likable might be stretching it likable might be stretching it a lot i don't find him particularly likable at all like he's the i would cross the street to avoid that fellow well gosh that's interesting i think he's he is a hoot and and he's in a sense even though he's a thief he's a straight shooter now this is going to take a a little bit uh, on a sideways journey and the fact that uh, he moves via the thief ways, mm-hmm. as you call them. And I th- I love this whole idea of the way the gods move around in the world. And this becomes really, you know, up front in the the, the salt black tree. Uh, so talk about creating these kind of byway- highways and byways, divine highways and byways. Well, have you ever been on a road trip and... You pull over to the side of the road to rest or to ease your bladder because we we are mortals. And have you ever looked at the landscape and felt that there that it's almost like a screen and that something else is behind it? I think that's a fairly common experience. Or you're out at night for some reason. You're out on a city street at night and it's deserted. And all of a sudden, you just feel like there's something behind the darkness. There's there's something else. Like you could open a door and be somewhere else. So I've had the, that feeling of, of slippage a lot in my life, not just because I, I write books and I'm always thinking about, you know, what if this story was happening or what if that was happening? I think that's fairly common. I think human beings are sensitive to a type of multiverse you know which is which is all the rage now in the marvel movies and everything and i think human beings understand that our existence is not one pointed so from there it's just it's not a lot to extrapolate that a divinity a god might just you know step behind that curtain a bit and then step back out at a, a different place in the physical world when they need to plus 
as a writer, I just really needed to not be looking at how long would it take to actually drive from one place to the other. So I kind of cheated by introducing the thief ways and Springs Country and all the other ways that the gods get around, especially in their their cars that can kind of flicker through traffic which, God, I've always wished the mine could when I was commuting. Yeah, that's one of the joys of reading this book is the way they flicker through traffic. And God, that would be extremely cool. <laughs> yeah, you live in it? the Bay Area, don't you? Yeah, yeah. You came from Southern California, land of the gridlocked uh, freeways. So I've spent more time in cars than I would prefer to. You know, one of the things that I, I really liked about this book was the way um that she has to it's essentially a, a straight up treasure hunt mm-hmm. but it doesn't it takes us a while to figure that out and to figure out the nature of everything so talk about revealing you know having a what is essentially a very straightforward story but revealing it in such a way that it it you're by the time you kind of grok everything that's going on, you go, Oh my god, this is so cool. Well, part of that is because I enjoy doing that as a writer. I, I enjoy throwing my readers in and, and going, We're in Meteor Res, just come with me. I've got this, you know, come with me if you want to live. I've got this really great thing to tell you. Just just trust me, let's go. Which uh, not all writers are like that. There are many different ways to do that, but I enjoy doing that. And a, a lot of my readers enjoy that too. Part of it is that I don't figure these things out until near the end. I just have to trust that the work will take the shape it needs to. And I may have a an idea of the end. For example, the last scene in Salt Black Tree, that ending, that was in my head from the beginning. The first scene and the last scene, I knew that these were the, the points, the, the gateposts between which we were going to go into the story. I just didn't really know how we would get there. I just had to trust that we would absolutely get there, mostly in one piece. So... Uh, I just, I love doing it so much. And really, if a book isn't a treasure hunt, if everything's explicit, if there's no thrill of discovery, that's that's kind of not the book that I prefer to read. Of course, I read a lot of history where we we know how things have turned out, but uh, that's different. That's nonfiction. But I just, no. I really enjoy the treasure hunt in a book. But a good nonfiction history can tell you something that you think you already know but by the time you get through it, you realize even if you know exactly what happened in the battle or the, the story of the life of X, by the time you get through reading a really good history, you, you kind of turning the page wanting to find out what happens. And mm-hmm. I think that that, that kind of uh, sensibility informs uh, great fiction as well. Yeah, one of the the push-pulls, constant push-pulls between me and, and my editors is them saying you need to make it more explicit and me saying no readers love ambiguity readers readers are smart readers are so much smarter than I am they will figure out my little easter eggs and they will figure out all my clues they're going to figure everything out I have never ever been um 
oh, what's the word I want here? I've never been disappointed in, in my readers. They are ever so much smarter than I could ever hope to be. So part of me putting the, the Easter eggs in and the, the treasure hunt aspect is me going, look, I, I know you're going to figure this out, but I'm like a three-year-old going, okay, let's play hide and seek. You're absolutely going to see me because I'm going to stand in the center of the room and close my eyes and pretend I'm invisible, but you're going to play the game with me, right? So I think it's a game between me and the reader. And uh, as long as I don't break the rules of those games, as long as the game remains internally consistent, we both get what we came here for. <laughs> you know, I, I like the the old lady in the, the desert. Oh, Virginia, yes. <laughs> yeah. But she was also reminiscent of, gosh, an artist. I'm trying to remember her name. Uh, yeah. Iris, yep. what's, what's her name? Uh, Virginia, and I'm going to say Wolf, but she's she's a collation of Virginia Wolf and another Virginia who O'Keefe. Okay, Virginia o Georgia O'Keefe. Georgia, Georgia O'Keefe and and oh. Virginia Wolf. So she's kind of an elision of those two figures. So oh, I kind of slapped okay. them together and gave them a heavy coating of Baba Yaga because she's another face of Baba Yaga, and that's the thing. Baba Yaga talks about, and Dimitri too, that how these gods have different faces in different places. And if they get too close to each other, there's a magnetic repulsion that happens, which I did not expect. You know, that Dimitri was going on talking about this and Baba Yaga mentioned it. And I'm like, wait, wait, what? So I, I had to sit down and like talk to my characters, be like, what, what are you talking? Oh, okay. That makes sense. But really? That's how it works? Oh, all right. Okay. So see, I'm just as surprised as readers by certain things. I just get to see them first. So when people ask me about them, I'm like, oh, oh yes, yes. I completely meant that. I did. I'm lying. <laughs> Straight face, bald faced lying. You know, one of the things that, that is interesting too is your choice of the different gods and the different, uh, you know, levels of divinity and how some of them are, you know, movie stars or, you know, reminiscent music stars, uh, Lady Gaga, Beyonce, you mentioned. So talk about, you know, making those decisions and just the appearance of any of those characters as a, a plot point because even the, the characters themselves become plot points in that they build out the world in different and unusual ways well i've always thought that it was possible and we talked about this a little bit last time about how there are gods that are forces of nature you know magnetism lightning the the seasons turning fire these are things that are not dependent on human beings, but at the same time, they are personified because that's how human beings interact with them. Because we anthropomorphize everything from a, a Roomba with a, a knife taped to it to great forces of nature. We anthropomorphize everything. I think that's one of our great strengths and frustrations as a species. So there's that. And then there are the gods we create that are kind of social, like Nell Bonnie or Candy, or uh, who are kind of two halves of the same coin, um, but they're sort of eternal truths of human social interaction. And then there are the celebrities, where we give so much of our energy to certain people or to the appearance or the image of certain people. We have these deeply felt parasocial relationships, but there is so much energy flowing. Why wouldn't that create its own 
echo in the world. So you can get to divinity in several different ways. And it just seemed natural to me that these would be the different ways it would happen. There's that kind of diversity in, in art, in the real world. Why not in the divine world? Now, did you um, create these as you went? Did they emerge from the prose and the storytelling on the page when you were writing? Or did you kind of have them in your mind and say, oh, now it's time for this this one to come in? It, it was kind of half and half. Some of them I, I knew. I did not know that Nell Bonnie was going to show up. Uh, I knew about Candy. I knew about Ranger. I did not know about Marie Laveau. I knew that when... When Nat got to New Orleans, she would she would meet somebody. There would be another powerful figure there, but I didn't know quite who it was. Um, and I knew about Virginia out in the desert too, because the, there's a a kind of a hidden hook in that scene. And when I talk about a hidden hook, uh, I view stories, books as um, often like a tapestry, and there has to be support behind it in the right places to get it to hang right and to give the illusion of, of three-dimensionality, right? So the hidden hooks are these little tiny things that may not seem large to the reader, but the, the writer absolutely knows that they have to be there to make the entire thing fall right. And in the desert scene with Virginia, there's that, that one bit where Virginia's first two nails on her hand just scrapes down Nat's arm like rattlesnake fangs. And that's one of the, that's how Virginia gives Nat this gift of almost righteous anger, because a lot of this is about Nat discovering her boundaries and anger is a sign that your boundaries have been trespassed. So she has to, to figure out her own anger. So that's, that's a hidden hook. So I knew that something like that would happen there. I just didn't know what I knew that that was why Virginia needed to be there. So it's about 50, 50. Sometimes I know I'm like, okay, we better brace ourselves. This character's coming up and about to step on stage. And then sometimes I'm writing and the characters pop up and say, Oh, here I am. <laughs> you can't, the listeners won't be able to see this, but I'm, I'm doing little puppet things with my hands, which I'm sure is extremely amusing. <laughs> so it is, it's about 50-50. Sometimes they they swan onto stage and I know they've they've been there and other times, I you know, beats me where they come from. You know, uh, one of the things about uh, Nat that's interesting to me is as... As the book goes on, she takes on more supernatural powers. But it's interesting that those also are accompanied by, you know, she becomes more mature in her outlook. And I think that's a fascinating. It's really well done. And I hadn't really even thought of it until Ew. this moment that that's the way it worked out. But so talk about choosing the elements of the fantastic that will be an outgrowth of or a reflection of the elements of that go together of put together are with which we put together our maturity. Well, they they happen on their own. And if somebody's a, a complete baby, you don't want them flinging around great cosmic power. I mean, we we're at a particular moment now in our society where we're we're seeing that, aren't we? I think that's that's been a, a human truth for a very long time, but not just on the surface. You know, on the surface, if if you have a little godling going out and discovering their powers and figuring out what they can do, like these are creatures who can drown somebody in cold mud. 
um, or, you know, turn their skin inside out or, you know, the various things that Dimitri could do to somebody who displeased him. As, as we see in the books. So on one level, there's that, but there's also underneath it, the fact that this is a almost a therapeutic journey for Nat. This is a journey into adulthood and becoming an adult, especially if you had a non-ideal childhood, becoming a person who is not like your childhood tormentors, it does require growth. So these processes happen in parallel and uh, and sometimes i had my editors help with that my editor would be like oh i see that you've you've made nat more mature in this way in this scene and i'm like yes i absolutely meant to do that and meanwhile i'm frantically paging back through going did i did i do that oh look i did that so part of that is just the internal consistency of the story itself there was a fascinating article not too long ago i think it was on lithub about the neurological things that happen when writers start creating characters and it engages some of the same circuits that dealing with actual people does so you a writer neurologically when they start interacting with their characters is training their brain to act in a certain way and then all of a sudden the characters sit up and start talking back because you've trained that into the brain and now it's you know the brain has decided to go do its own thing which I find absolutely fascinating and really revolutionized this I had been fumbling through the process before with no idea what was going on I just knew that it worked and now I'm like oh it's my brain it's neurological so I don't really have an answer other than that. It just happens. It's one of those weird things that writers are built for, I guess. Well, I think, too, it strikes me that in this way that good writing is, in a sense, kind of very much like, met, I guess, what's called method acting, where you kind of pretend to be Yeah, we talked about the... that last time, too. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that uh, one of the things that, that's interesting is that here you are, a mature, successful writer. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, oh, I don't know if I'd go that far, but thank you. Yeah. Oh, no. But um, looking back and tracing this journey that, that maybe you have made in, in your writing, so it, it's a form of, in a sense, I guess, a self-therapy. It can be therapeutic. Uh, it, it can also be an exorcism. Um, there are certain experiences that you write to, to sort of process them. There are, so, and, and part of it is the way I think a lot of writers look at the world because you, you write for long enough and you start to get this reflex where everything is material. I was in a, years and years ago, I was driving out to the, the Washington coast and I was in a, a rather bad car accident. Um, there was a deer in the road, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> one things I remember about that is the the highway patrolman you know leaning down as I was on the gurney and going next time honey just hit the damn deer and I was like I might have I didn't you know but as I was hanging upside down in this in this pickup truck uh, in a ditch on the, on the side of, of a mountain uh, I I part of me the mother part of me because my children were very young was like okay you're gonna be fine first we're gonna get you out of the seatbelt you know just breaking it down as if I was talking to a toddler and then there was the the actual me freaking out 
you know, but then there was the writer me in a different compartment. The writer me was like, oh, this is great stuff. Let's, let's take that. Let's note how this feels like, oh yeah, your head's kind of throbbing because you're upside down. You better remember that. And I didn't realize that this was happening until I was writing a book. Goodness. I think it was mind healer. I think I was writing that like almost a year and a half later. And there, there was a, a car accident in that. And I was pulling these details from elsewhere. And I'm like, wait a minute, where does this come from? Well, came because I hadn't fully processed that. But now I knew what it was like to hang upside down in a car. And by God, I was going to use that because it's great material. So I think writers train themselves to do this. Everything is material. Everything goes in the hopper. So how can it help but be therapeutic or an exorcism or uh, in very real ways, an act of magic? And I think, too, that one of the things you do really well in this book is hold our attention, keep keep us in a very high page turning type state. But at the same time as we're, we're turning the pages for a lot, I mean, what's what, 700 pages, right? Something like that. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of book. It's a lot of book. But I, A, splitting two books, I think, uh, ultimately, would you have asked me beforehand, I would have said, no, it should be just one book. Just one book. Oh. Actually, I think <laughs> two books worked out really well. And, yeah, we, we went back and forth with that, the editor and I, the, the problem of where to split it and how to split it and and how the architecture of the book and how splitting it up would change that. So which really this is this is my first time working with this particular editor, and it was really a trust building exercise, uh, which my editor passed with stunning flying colors. And I couldn't be happier about how it turned out. But it is it's a, it was a very personal trust exercise because I was like you know when you write a book you are and especially through the revisions process you can't see the forest for the trees because it's right here it is right it is an inch in front of your nose so you depend on your editor your copy editor your proofer to say oh look there's a hole over here in the forest and you're like how dare you tell me there's a hole yeah maybe I should fix that so it's part of the synergy of of publishing, I think. So I'm I'm intensely grateful because given my druthers, I probably would have released it as one giant book myself. But I think that would have been the wrong choice too. So my editor was right on that. I I, I would uh, give her kudos for that, and I think that um, it's an interesting tension to create a book where on one hand. We want to be on every page very deep. We want to take our time and luxuriate in this journey, which I did because there's so much weird stuff going on. Oh, you flatter me. <laughs> I, and, you know, you kind of like just like look out the window all the time of the books. So speak. Wow, that's really weird. Oh, that's a great detail over there. Oh, this is this weird thing that's happening now. It's really cool. And on the other hand, you want to find out what's going to happen going to happen you want to keep the tension up so talk about creating that balance between page turning tension and creating a world where the reader wants to luxuriate and just be in that world because that's the point of reading i mean i got to spend you know a good week and a half going around driving around with the gods what more can i ask for that's a better vacation than getting in a goddamn plane very flattering my my little grinch heart is growing by leaps and bounds (laughs) so a lot of that happens in rewriting 
So the, the first stage, I call them zero drafts, is when I, I absolutely am working hot and fast to get everything out on the page, to get the whole book out. I'm, I'm, I refer to it as labor. It is very much emotionally like birthing a child. Uh, yeah, I don't hesitate to say that. I've, I've done both multiple times. And yeah, one more than the other, but you get the idea. So the, the first stage is just getting the book out of you. You've had this, this thing inside you. And then there's exhaustion after that. But then there's the rewriting stages where your editor tells you where the, the holes in it are. And you go back and you read it again. And out of the, the six or seven details you've put on the page, there's one that is the right detail, the telling detail. And finding that one is a measure of, of craft, of skill, of personal preference, and also of experience because you, you write enough books and then you kind of get a feel for what you think the telling detail is. And then there are the places where you have three or four details and you're like, none of these work. I have to throw them all out. Here's a completely different detail that happens to be the right one. And learning to do that, learning to tell those apart, there really is nothing for it but experience. You just have to you have to, and pardon the crudity, but you just have to vomit up enough books onto the morgue table. And then you have to go to work trimming and padding and painting cosmetics on them to get them the right shape so that when, you, you know, you have the open casket viewing, people walk by and they're like, oh yeah, that's, a, that's beautiful. You did a wonderful job. That's absolutely, <laughs> I've beaten that metaphor absolutely into the ground. But yeah, that happens in, in rewriting. That happens and and sometimes it doesn't work for every reader. There's it's not going to be every reader's cup of tea. So obviously it hit for you, which I'm unendingly grateful for because it would be very awkward if it didn't. Well, um, you know, um you said that you'd written YA books before. And in a sense, this is arguably YA, sort of almost. It's a little, I think, a little bit over the top. Um, depending on your teenager, I probably would have read it as, you know, a 12 year old and gone, wow, wow, cool. I was reading Harlan Ellison's, well, <laughs> yeah. what was it? The, the, uh, oh gosh, uh, I have no mouth and I must scream when I was a kid. And I, oh, I, wow. didn't, I didn't quite grok what was going on exactly because I was a little bit too young to, to get all the, the, the terrifying, awful details, but I think mm -hmm. they sunk through. Nonetheless, um, so talk about, did you conceive of this as a way? Because it's also, I mean, any adult can read this and just go, wow, this is a cool story, really weird, lots of good stuff I've happens. never written a book to be specifically YA. Oh, okay. there, I The books that, that have been published as YA, there were stories that I thought would already fit into that model, you know, I tend to, I finish a book and then I take it to my agent and say, okay, what's, what's the genre on this one? You know, I've, I've got this baby, like what, what is it? So uh, the thing about YA is that I'm kind of at variance with the base assumption of that, that the assumption in YA is that there are certain things children shouldn't read. And I don't necessarily think that's true. I was a voracious, omnivorous reader as a child. And if I didn't understand something, I chalked it up to that being part of the big people world and moved on. Now, with my children, my own children, raising them, we had a reading policy in the house. And the policy was, if you can reach it, you can read it. 
And if you cannot reach it, get a step stool, ask somebody to get it for you. No. So I don't think it's necessary to constrain or censor child's reading. I think the important thing is to be in communication about the reading that a child is doing or the media they're consuming. Like my kids could could watch or read anything because they knew that I was there if they had questions. It was my job to come up with age-appropriate answers to their questions, which is a lot of parenting work and effort. And it's not something that a lot of, of parents, it's not something that some parents do. So they they want to outsource it to genres, to teachers, to censorship, to, oh, you shouldn't read about this, you know, which you know, ideologically and personally, I am against for a variety of reasons. So learning to work in the in the YA genre, I don't think it's something I would do again. Even if my characters are very young, I tend to put them out there as books that have young protagonists, not YA books. Because when it comes to YA, you have this whole architecture of expectations that I don't particularly feel are good for, for kids. Yeah, well, uh, as you were talking. Sorry. Uh, no, as you were talking, I was thinking, uh, too, about uh, my own experience as a kid. Like My parents had a bookshelf that was kind of in the wall behind the couch, and I used mm-hmm. to go sit down. I remember sitting down there and pulling down what turned out to be a life-changing book by Richard Matheson of his short stories and, and reading. Oh, classic. Read, yeah, the, the original uh, story of Little Girl Lost from The Twilight Zone, like kind of hiding behind the couch reading, <laughs> reading this book. Heart in your it, mouth, excited, turning every page. Oh, that's the good stuff. That That is the the reason we, we get down and read now. Um, it seems to me that, that you could write more stories in with this setting are you planning on or what where do you know where you're going next i think i think nat's story is is finished you know spring is on her way (laughs) which i kind of missed up every time i think about that ending scene it's it's involved with me by with a particular song kathleen edwards goodbye california and that which i played over and over again while writing it and music is a really integral part of of my creative process um, but no, I don't know if I'd go back. Of course, now that I've said that, um, you're not the first person to ask me, you know, in a year or so, all of a sudden, another story in that world might come along and, you know, fasten itself on me and, and won't stop biting until I tell it. Uh, but I am, because of the vagaries of publishing, I'm already, you know, several books down the road. I I finished Hell's Acre, that, that duology. And the next thing I'm I'm looking forward to after Salt Black Tree actually comes out in, in August is the the Tolkien Viking werewolves one. So the first book, A Flame in the North, is coming out next February. So I'm I'm looking at the third in that series when the first one hasn't even come out. So you ask, are you ever going to go back to this world? And I'm like, damned if I know. <laughs> wow, that's a you know, just to finish up one final thing for working in the publishing world, you know, this Book is a book that you finished, must have finished, it sounds like maybe two years ago. You finished most of your work on two years ago. Just see it come to fruition now. Talk about how that feels and how that influences, you know, the Tolkien thing you're working on now. 
Oh, publishing is a game of delayed gratification. If you are not good with delayed gratification, you probably should not be in publishing because that's all it is. Is It takes a long time for even if you're self-publishing to go through the quality control steps necessary because a lot of publishing isn't really about the work itself. It's about quality control, getting the work to the point where people can read it without being annoyed by typos and, you know, formatting issues all the way down there. So I I happen to be good at delayed gratification, not because I'm intrinsically that way. As a matter of fact, I am not. I hate it. I despise it. I loathe it. Unfortunately, after raising two children and being in publishing for about 15 years, it has become my default state. So life has very much put me in that you're going to have to learn to like this, Lily. So that's the thing. As for how this this book, uh, I like to work in two or three different genres at a time. So I like to have at least one fantasy, maybe something paranormal, and then like a contemporary suspense all on my burners at the same time. So that if one book isn't working, I can switch to an entirely different book in a different genre and kind of look at the other one and go, huh, see, see, I'm going to leave you behind if you don't start behaving. I make books jealous with each other. And this works. I don't know if it works for every writer, but it works for me. And it's probably the only reason why I've gotten so many done. So I, I kind of use all these different books to, to make each other jealous so that they'll they'll finish and go away and stop bothering me. So this happens to coincide nicely with how publishing actually works as a business. So I suppose I'm fortunate in that event. So, which is not exactly to answer your question, but that's the best answer I can give because this is just such a weird career to be in. I have been speaking with Lilith St. Crow. Her new book is The Completion of the Dead God's Heart which consists of Spring Arcana and the new book, The Salt Black Tree. Thank you for joining me, Lilith. Thank you for having me very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.